Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and welcome to part two of my conversation with the incredible Dr. B.J. Miller. In this uh, part two of the conversation, I delve deeply, probably more deeply than I ever have before, into some of my personal journey as it relates to my father and his decline in health um, with dementia. We talk about mourning, we talk about loss, we talk about how all of us can prepare and use sort of death as an impetus for living, and what it looks like to prepare for death, and what it looks like to um, be with it, and not have it be a barrier to living, but actually a catalyst to being more fully alive. So with that, I hope you really, really enjoy this episode. It was one of my favorite conversations to date. Sharing was this, 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 my, my father's pouch, which to me is symbolic of him and our, give, to give context, when I was in my darkest night of the soul, um, my dad, uh, I moved across the country to be with a woman who cheated on me and went through, you know, was drinking a lot and doing a lot of, and my dad basically took me through this uh, men's work. And uh, without going into great detail, it was a ritual rebirth. And out of 150 men, he was the only father that showed up to staff to be of service. Uh, and it was, it was quite a, it was part of the reason why he holds such a, a, a close place in my heart. But I got the, that pouch at the end of that weekend. And so when I was doing the ceremony and that pouch broke off, it was like a symbolic confrontation. And amidst this period, I'm confronted with do I spend the time and disrupt what is this very sacred ceremony, which my ego wanted to say, hey, everyone, can you help me find this pouch? Or do I listen to the music? And in that moment, when I say, it's like if you were sitting next to Aretha Franklin on a bus and you had no idea it was Aretha Franklin, but as soon as she sang, you were like, I'm listening to the voice of God. <laughs> And this gentleman, he was a larger man, trucker hat, no, no adornment. He wasn't, you know, there was no, you would have no idea. But when he started to work that rattle, it was like, and I shared, it was like kind of like a river runs through it when Brad Pitt kind of creates this new casting technique, which is his sort of masterwork after thousands of hours on. This man had figured out a way to use a rattle in such a way that it evoked it evoked a sense of possibility that was, I don't know a better way to articulate it, but was a gift. It put me into my deeply rested nature. It was like things within myself were, were orienting to their center, to finding that center. And it was like I no longer needed to be in the manic mind, which to me was representative of the years I had spent contending with the all of the fears and emotions of my father's passing. And in surrendering, I went back to my seat and I sat down and I just listened to this man's music, which was, uh, I, you know, it was, you know, Mozart, it was Beethoven, it was whatever, 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 that's the, such the power of music. And in doing so, I surrendered. And in right next to me on my right hand side, under a pillow, I found my, I, I, I found the medicine bag. <laughs> Uh, I've never shared that story, but thank you for, for listening. Yes. So yeah, it was, to me, it was, uh, 
Yeah, it was it was to me it's that anchor because I, I, I still know that I go back into that frantic mind and I and I fear and sure. you know the lo- loss, all of those um, those nuances of emotions. But at least mm-hmm. I have a reference point to sort of draw, as you had mm-hmm. shared, right? Like when you shift that reference point, that's what the gift of that moment was. Mm-hmm. It was, it was enabling me to like uh, take like a deep exhale and shift my reference point. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, it was like coming home. Yeah, brother. Yeah, brother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so beautiful, Michael. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You gave me chills. But amen. I mean, right on. I mean, and I think, right, I don't think you could have gotten there had you chosen to, you know, like it, it seems to me these half these experiences have something to do with not choosing them. I wouldn't have chosen to lose my legs. You wouldn't have chosen to lose that pouch. But when something comes along that's bigger than you, um, I think there's something to be said about a little bit of force in this, you know, like back to our present time right now none of us would choose this uh, and that's part of its power um and by us forcing this reckoning i think is the right word by forcing us to exercise our freedom to choose our frame of reference to move our lens to accommodate the world rather than the opposite and rather than vice versa uh that's that hard that's that's the crucible out of which comes this knowledge and it's not just knowledge, right? You're describing this feeling of alignment, this axis in you that sets up and clicks in a place and it's right with the world. Anyway, it's beautiful. And I think these can these experiences can happen on large and small scales. But it does seem to me a little bit important that's that that, that it's almost like I want for younger people I meet or med students that I meet that I work with, you know, I kind of find myself wanting something really hard to befall their lives, not hard enough to kill them, not hard enough to flatten them, but hard enough to make them really check themselves and, and question just about everything. Um, and it, again, it usually takes a force come along and make something happen that we would never have chosen. That's the beginning of the charm. And I think that's what we're right now. This is something we would not have chosen. But the upshot here is you had that as a personal experience. I had this as a personal experience. Can you imagine if all of your brothers and sisters in the world were having the same experience at the same time? Holy shit. I mean, the potential here to come out of this in a very different way, not just through individual transformation, but this collective transformation. Wow. I I almost, I have to watch myself. I must say, I have to watch myself. I don't get too excited about a pandemic, but there is this potential and I don't want to lose sight of that potential. But let me just say one more thing too, before I forget, Michael, Um, you know, sometimes what I think you and I are talking about right now butts up against positive psychology in a way like you know positive attitude you know that just find a positive attitude and 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 it'll orient you and you'll become positive and away you'll go now there's something to that but i've watched some folks sort of try to shortcut and to to keep quote-unquote negative things away and only welcome in positive things it doesn't i don't think that works because Positive, negative, those are adjectives we make up. The world is filled with positive and negatives. If you want to just keep a, half of the world at bay, the negatives, and only usher, you are living half a life. You're, it's an incomplete reality. 
And remember, we're the ones who choose these adjectives of positive and negative. So I, I want to just to note for for each other and our and, the, and your listeners. I don't think what we're talking about here is is keeping sorrow at bay. It's more like embracing it to some degree, to the degree you can, and then you'll get to a different kind of positivism. It's not about keeping hard stuff at bay. That, I think, is a dead end. I would never suggest people um, isolate their sorrows or somehow alienate their misery. There's a lot to learn from your misery. Yeah, the visual I have is almost like the little boy inside of me or like that fearful the fearful child within all of us that kind of like curls up in a corner and almost is quivering. And it's not, I think, uh, it's not necessarily um, avoidance, but I think the, the visual that comes to me is it's kind of like the strength that comes in, in acceptance, like in actually like yeah. uncovering the eyes and confronting. And confronting with 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 a sort of almost like a of stepping into a new uh, vision of possibility um, around what had previously seemed so uh, debilitating or or fear inducing or scary and I, I you know I'm I'm definitely far from perfect in that process but I but I but I but I do think those moments where we have that in other areas of life can be great anchors for you know kind of sailing in these challenging waters where it's like, absolutely, you know, like, okay, how, how do, you know, uh, we're in uncharted territory. We're in uncharted, but, but to your point, I mean, I, I think it is, you know, to, to sort of bring it back to, to, to art and the collective experience it is this sort of archetypal hero's journey in a way, this collective mm-hmm. hero's journey, because any archetype, you know, Luke Skywalker, whoever you want to use, you know, whatever, you know, <laughs> you, whatever, whatever archetype you want to use, it, it, it is, you know, there's always the descendants before the ultimate transcendence. And to the degree that you're able to work with, for lack of a better term, the shit is the degree to which you can turn that into the compost for new gardens. And I think, yes. I think, I think, but, 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 but you're right. I don't think it is a positive psychology. It's like, it's not, it's not all flowers, right? Yeah, there has no, to be, there no. has to be, a, there has to be a contending with the, you know, the, that compost, that alchemy, that, that working with the actual, uh, forgive me shit manure whatever you want to call it to actually have that garden have 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 uh, vitality i think you got it amen amen yeah. so me, i like in other words like one last just thought on that just a complete, please please like, you and i right and lord knows there's more for us to learn etc i don't mean to say that we're sitting here as these sages but we're talking about some pretty we're talking about some wisdom in here somewhere and my guess is that True sages, they still feel fear. They still feel selfish thoughts, or you name it. These things that would be uh, uh, a less initiated might feel like, oh gosh, what's the Dalai Lama being doing, being afraid of something? Mm. You know, it's these emotions. What makes emotion emotion is that you don't control it. It's really ultimately ever what you do with these feelings, and what I do with my fear, and how I respond to it, etc. It's not that I. Oh, I'm done with fear now. I've had these transformative experiences, and I don't have to fear anything anymore. Nah, I, I fear all sorts of stuff. It's just I'm not as prisoner of my fear anymore. Uh, beautifully said. 
Uh, yeah, I think I think that, that that's another fallacy, right? That, that there's some arrival to get to, right? Like that some sage has arrived and all yeah. of a sudden, like <laughs> they, they don't have, you know. I, I just uh, my last interview was with Steve, yeah. Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art, and we were talking mm-hmm. about the context of resistance, you know. Mm-hmm. And he's like, resistance, you know. He's 74 now. He's written 13 books, you know. He's mm-hmm. like, yeah, no, resistance is still there. In fact, it gets more dynamic. It adapts with you, you know. Like it shows, <laughs> yeah. it shows up in new ways because. It's it's, yeah. it's dancing yeah. with your own psyche, you know, and and yeah. I think that's yeah. I mean, I, it doesn't go anywhere. There's no there to get to. There's no arrival. I don't think uh, that all of a sudden it goes away. Those challenges, but I, let me ask you a tangible. This is something I've been because you you know I, I, you have a very unique perspective in that you have, as I understand it, you know, in sort of my research, you know, sort of attended to. A great number, hundreds certainly, if not you know potentially a thousand plus um, passings, and helped people in their transition process. And um, let me start with asking, I guess, a broad question, then and then I'll actually get more specific. But what what have you learned in that process, in in the observation, and and in a way in the hand holding, um, and I'm sure it's much more complex than that actually being in the palliative care context, but in, in, in bearing witness to those who are making their transition, what have you noticed as both like, what I'm trying to get at is what's the impetus for living, right? So part of me almost wants to ask about like what are, and I know there's been books written about this, but like kind of what are the regrets of the dying that people can use as impetus for living now? But but there but there, I think there's also a, a deeper question, which is, what what have you what wisdom, uh, in a way, can you impart from having that very rare, firsthand experience, um, mm-hmm. such that it can help other people both I think to live in in potentially with fresh eyes, uh, perhaps to see death in a new way. And then, you know, from a deeply personal, perhaps selfish context, you know, as someone who's going to confront that in a way that scares the shit out of me, you know, mm-hmm. you know, um, and also I think I've, I've because it's not and I, I think I read this in your book, you know, I think only 10, 10 or 20 percent of deaths are actually surprises. You know, I think 80 yeah. percent of people or something like that um, actually know what's going to kill them before before beforehand. Yeah. Um, and with my dad, for example, you know, I've been it's it's I wouldn't wish dementia on anyone uh, because it's like in a way it's beautiful because it wasn't sudden. And so I've 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 had a prolonged period to to share experiences. But at the same time, it's like a prolonged morning. And I never know if this is the last goodbye. It's not the last goodbye. What what that's going to look like. And mm-hmm. I, so, you know, that's probably about four questions in one, but I guess let's start with, you know, what insights have you garnered such that you think it, it may be helpful in others who are contending with uh, mortality of them, themselves or perhaps a loved one? Yeah. Well, let's see. Let's open it up a little bit. There. So um, a couple thoughts in no particular order. Let's just think out loud together. Yeah. I mean, one is... Um, on some level, there's a lot of room for reassurance um, that death, on some level, we know how to die. You know, mm-hmm. we as a species have been doing a long time. You know, we, this is, 
So I, I, one thing that comes up and I find it reassuring to say is you're not going to fail at it. You know, you can't, you can't fail that. It's maybe the one thing you can't fail. I mean, it's charm is that it, it, everything must go. You know, there's no, you know, if you just have the positive thoughts or don't smoke and then you can find some way through this thing. No, you know, so, uh, it's much more thorough and remarkable than that. And, um, so one is a little reassurance, like on some level, you're going to find your way, you'll get there, you know, um, another level, I think it's a, a, I think it's sort of a developmental thing to embrace that pain, sorrow, tears, those aren't failings. Those are marks, markers of a full, rich life. You know, so what I see at the end of life is people who stop either by force or by choice trying to keep parts of their life at bay you know, and, and are flushed into this much bigger reality. Even when their lives are shrinking, something, there's a potential to be expanding into a much bigger reality. And, you know, you can talk about this in the frame of like a Freudian sort of ego kind of thing. The ego has got to die. Um, but one one of the things that, uh, you know, that comes up at the end of life with folks is, for one, for the dying person, very often, by the time death really rolls around, they're pretty okay with it. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. really, it's, it's all of us who have to watch and worry about our, you know, it's our neuroses and our just love of missing someone, you know, that that's so, that's so much the torment. Yeah. But if I'm honest, when I, when I, when I'm sitting with people who are actually doing the dying, one way or another, by the time it comes, most people find their way to some amount of, okay, here we go. Because you just start realizing all our machinations, like we're talking, all our word choices and these are, that's just our brains wigging out, you know, like we're just, this is just going to happen and we will do it and we will get through it. Um, so again, there's some reassurance there. I think there is this huge lesson of your orientation to, to I, to me, to my ego. And you'll see folks who tend to die well, one, not that it's a competition, but I mean by well, I mean like whole like okay with themselves uh, is somewhere along the way they figured out that it's not just about them, mm. you know, that, and I don't think that, I don't think the goal here is to shrivel our ego, to beat up our ego, try to not have an ego. It's like, we're talking about everything else. It's like, yeah, you got an ego. It's, it's part of the deal. It's just not everything, mm. you know, so don't confuse it with everything. So sure, I'm gonna. This body's gonna die. My ego's gonna die. Damn. And there's much more to life than this, right? So if, if you find a way as a as a kind person to inject meaning and thought and love outside of yourself to care about the world beyond yourself, which most certainly sounds like your father has, you know, then you in some ways that's your road to immortality. He's going to live on in you in very real ways, and Lord knows how many people he's touched. Yeah. Um, and because he's this cosmic dust that doesn't go, doesn't really, just re-congeals in some other form, you, you can kind of prove immortality in this way. As long as you let go of your these constructs that hold your ego in place, that holds reality in this fixed way. Um, so one way or another, people find their way into flushing into this much bigger sense. It's not like I'm 
it's not like my ego died. It's more like I expanded into everything. I see myself into ev- in everything and everything in me. And life, we talk about end of life. It's not, it's end of my life. Life's going to keep going. This life will die, but I'll keep going. So that's a huge thing. You can just, that just happens. People, people sometimes it's like some reflection and talking out like we're doing, but one way or another, people just find their way to doing this because this is a natural process. No. So um, that is a very beautiful, I think, important thing. I think the sooner we humans get um, more, I was going to say unselfish, but let's just say as soon as we become more than just selfish, we are doing ourselves a big favor preparing ourselves for our own demise because by the time we will have right size, I will, by the time my, you, you or I die, if we keep doing what we're doing now, we will have right sized to proportioned ourselves to the world. And as this world's shutting down for this body, I'll be super aware that I, that everything else is going to keep going and I get to be part of it one way or another. Anyway, I'm going to keep talking in loops, but let me just check. I know, in. Does I that it. make sense? Yeah, 100, okay. 100%. I think in part also, uh, I'll just say that, and I'm not, by the way, a uh, proponent, nor do I want to digress, but I think in part also having w- with ecstatic experiences. In other words, like experiences wherein you dissolve the ego for, for a period in time yeah. and you tap into that. Uh, collective, I mean, to use again that case, for example, of in a, in a, obviously in a sacred set and setting, sitting um, yep. with indigenous elders. And, and that was a conversation I had by the fire. And I remember uh, I was actually talking with the Cheyenne uh, gentleman and, and I talked about my dad. And in the same way that I think you are bringing about a, a, an assuaging a sense of anxiety, he was like, it's not, it's not the end, man. It's a beautiful, it's yeah. a beautiful, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful part of the process. And I think in those moments of tapping into that, recognizing exactly what you're saying is true, which is that there is actually, in a way, it's like, it's like birth, just birth into a new form. Um, yeah. uh, anyway, so yeah, but keep going, please, because I'm loving listening. Yeah. Well, so so these are some these are some thoughts that li- life is really harder on the living. Um, I think also we've already talked about about the confluence of life and death and seeing them as part and parcel of a, of a greater whole, I think, is really, really key. Um, I do think there is something to, um, you know, part of a, of, a, of a healthy death is this sort of letting go of your own self, but taking care of the world around you. Mm. So finding your way to caring about the world. We've talked a little bit about that. But um I think, I think one of the things that's really, uh, I think an important distinction that may help, and, I, and we talk about this in the book, is to distinguish uh, between your fear of dying, um, which generally is a fear of the suffering we imagine to be part and parcel of the dying process, um, from your fear of death, from your fear of being dead. Um, the, the, the former is actually pretty straightforward. Hosp- anyone who works in hospice can tell you, you know, we can do a lot to help people not suffer in a life. Some suffering is just going to come, but you don't. It's not. It doesn't have to be this horror show that most of us imagine. And that that and that and that I think is reassuring. There's a lot we can do to help each other feel better until the in, in, in the end. But this idea of a fear of being dead. Well, I think that's a huge, important religious, spiritual, philosophical question that we should all be thinking about because that that makes us contend with the idea of not being. And that is a very enriching process to go through. Some folks 
you know, when you kind of boil that fear down, when I talk to people at the end of their lives, they may say, yo, I'm terrified to die. Um, but when you tease all that out, oftentimes what they're saying is they don't want like, they're going to miss, they're going to miss you. Mm. You know, that's often what they're saying, or they're going to miss out, you know, of, of this or that, or, um, or what they may be saying is, God, I really love life. You know, and sometimes it comes off as a fear, but what is really the source of that fear is this they're clutching this thing that they love. Yeah. You know, so I mean watching folks kind of do these dances and if you let yourself you're going you're watching a deconstructive process, you're watching a reckoning, and that is one of the honors of being at the bedside with people who die is you know, we've done it um, by choice in Pyoto circles, for example, um, where you can practice a disillusion, where you can practice a deconstruction. Um, I think that's really, really valuable. Um, so, gosh, now I'm rambling. I don't even remember where I was going. But um, I guess where I'm, I guess what I'm circling around to, Michael, for you specifically and in general here for our conversation is in so many ways, if we let ourselves, we already know something about death. Mm. Dying's happening all around us. And all we can really officially tell, say about it is it's a change. It's a change in state. That's all I can prove. Mm. Um, and we know loss. We know change. You know death. When we walk around the street. Just take a walk down the street. You will kill several thousand bugs with your feet. You would drive, you will see a leaf falling from a tree. Whatever it is, loss of your body, skin cells that slough off. You know, if you start tuning in, death is not this exotic, esoteric thing in the closet. It's just friggin' everywhere. And that's, that's a wonderful realization. That means we know more about it than we think we do. And I can say that with, uh, I can say that with some certainty because I've watched a lot of people die and I've watched a lot of people not be too afraid of it when it's actually happening. So there, there's something in here. Um, and I guess, I guess that's my final point is trust that, have some faith. And if, especially if you're paying attention to this bigger reality throughout your life, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised to find that the dying process isn't so different from the living process. Mm. First of all, just, I think, thank you for that beautifully and eloquently, um, sort of articulated sentiment. Um, the, the, the one piece that came up for me that that I was thinking about just for the benefit of those listening that I've that I've read about in your book. And then, you know, again, I, I've never spoken about this publicly, but that frankly, from, you know, in, in deeply held medicine circles has been a real gift for me is the Ho'oponopono, the, the Hawaiian, you know, prayer of um, please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. And you write about that in your book. And. I just I, there's been moments where in listening to that song and then going through that process, I feel like I feel like you're right. In a way, if someone has done the reckoning and done the work for them, in some ways, dying is probably less scary than it is for the loved ones with whom they have been relating throughout their whole life. Yeah. And so I think yeah. just to, you know, I think that's the thing for me, too, too, is it's like it's. Again, it's that the, the the nature of our interdependence and all the way that, that that forces a collective reckoning, you know, like my father's passing has forced a, a reckoning with my mother in our relating in a totally different way. Uh, it has forced a reckoning with my sister and and her husband in terms of just like so many of the different pieces, many of which you attend to in the, in the book, which I highly recommend. But I think 
that spiritual process of, uh, not even spiritual, it doesn't have to be, but that, that reckoning of, of saying the things that need to go, that need to be said to, to say goodbye, if you will, yeah. in a good way, yeah. in, a, in yep. a beautiful way. I'd love it if you just spoke to that a little bit. That and the, the other piece that hit me was just like, um, well, actually, I'll, I'm going to pause there and then I'll, I'll, I'll close with that, the second point of what I wanted to make. Okay. But, but, uh, but I'd, lo- I'd, love, I'd love for you to just speak to, okay, there's the piece, which I think we've dealt with in a really, you've dealt with in an incredibly beautiful way of one's passing and contending with one's passing. Mm-hmm. And, and also um, sort of assuaging the fear that, that, that surrounds that. But as it relates to those left behind and their own journey of reckoning with the loss of a loved one or preparation for the loss of a loved one and how to say what needs to be said for that to happen in a beautiful way, any thoughts you have around that would be would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's so much learning. And uh, and it's also, I, this comes up with, with patients um, who oftentimes are feeling ashamed to be dying because of some of our signaling in our country and our culture that dying is somehow an aging it's something to be ashamed of and embarrassed of it's a failing i watch people reckon with that and um you know that that where was i going with that (laughs) um when the hell was i going with that anyway let me let me get back to your question but, um, you know, this idea, there's some, uh, I love you. Mm. I'm sorry. Mm. Thank you. Goodbye. I'm proud of you. You know, these are things I learned some of this by, from Ira Bayak, who's a palliative care physician who wrote a great book called The Four Things That Matter Most. But he's touching on indigenous wisdom that you, you reference Hawaiian culture. Um, these, are, these are ideas that are out there and been out there a long, long time. And in this way, the dying person gets to be the teacher. I started to say, like, I think I've seen the powerlessness overcome people when they're sick and heading towards death. But if they can turn a corner, they start to see the wisdom playing out in them. They get to see the wisdom of their body. They get to see the wisdom of the cosmos, and they get to actually feel it. And eventually, given enough time with the right audience, that dying person becomes the teacher. That frail thing falling apart in a bed that smells funny is actually this very smart and tuned thing that's proving a lot of things to us and teaching us a lot. And one of the things you can do as a dying person is you can take that opportunity to find some closure and to think about who's going to be left behind. So maybe it is calling the family together and saying, you know, and making amends, um, setting someone up in their grief to do a little bit differently and not have to wonder how you felt about how they, how that dying person felt about you. You know, I, there is an opportunity. There is a lesson. There are lessons to be learned. And the dying person gets to be the master. Gets to be the teacher. And you know, closure. I think closure is an invention. I don't think it naturally exists. Um, but it's a pretty cool invention. And it's a you're doing you're, you're doing the people who survive you a real favor if you can tidy things up for them and set them off into their grief absent guilt, absent shame, absent some of the other secondary emotions that can make it so, so, so difficult. Um, so, so back to the, back to these very basic, these basic human things, you know, again, I'm sorry. I love you. All that good stuff. If you can do that work and you can, if, 
you can set the, your survivors off into a different trajectory that way, into their grief filled with love and beauty and just pure kind of clean sorrow is something we, a phrase we've used before. What, what a gift. Mm-hmm. And if you have that, you know, we can imagine this over the generations. If we kind of tend to, if we, as a human being, if I, let, if I take the responsibility to stop some of these cycles that we pass on to each other, some of these pathologies that we pass on to each other, I can stop that. I can I can let that die with me and set you off, set go off into the night with this loving, apologetic message. I think is so so sweet, and it reminds me of this sort of one of the ways that death is such a teacher is because we all die, because it's coming no matter what we do. It allows me in a way to try things. It allows me to try because I'm, I'm going to fail no matter what I do. I'm going to die no matter what I do. So I might as well try. You know, there's no charge. I might as well like, go for it because I'm willing to fail because, because failing in this way is inevitable. You know, right? So the fact that we die sets us up to, to, to try in the first place. And it also has this bimodal effect where it's like you also know that there's no way you're going to get to everything in this life. You know, there's there's no way that you can get everything just so. So in death, it gives me and what dying people have taught me is, hey, man, go try. You can be afraid, but don't be don't let fear grip you too hard. Go try things. Failing ain't so bad. And then there's a second thing. Yeah, I'll go try. And then when I fail, I have an excuse to forgive myself, too, because we all fail, because it's just part of the deal. So it, it sets me up. It gives me the compulsion to try, and it gives me the compulsion to forgive myself. And that, that one-two punch is a very beautiful thing, and dying people have taught me that uh, up and down a gazillion times over. Wow. Yeah, that notion of legacy, which I think sometimes we take very seriously, I, I think that idea of embracing f- failure is such a – it almost reminds me of that surrender, of like actually if you do, yeah. if you do, if you do see failure almost as a success in and of itself because you've, cr- you, you've looked at the greatest existential quote-unquote failure as an impetus yeah. for living, it kind of frees you up from a lot of the things that I think hold us back. Um, yes. So that's yes. beautiful. Um, what about – and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this. And, and I'm, I'm actually going to ground this person. I was going to ask you this offline, but I'm actually going to I'm going to take the vulnerable path. Mm. So I think there's there's a piece around grief and grieving, and and also um, and also mourning. I think different cultures obviously have, you know, traditions whereby there was like almost a a. Uh, a way in which that was held, you know, like in, as I understand in certain Indian traditions, like, you know, a, a son would shave its, his head and kind of that would almost indicate the passing of time to sort of, uh, of adequate grieving, or there would be ways in which there was sort of a commensurate cultural tradition to help someone through that period of time. Mm-hmm. And I've seen in my own life, you know, when I had my, without going into a great narrative, when I had my greatest trauma, which initially was going away and getting jumped by a, a, a gang, I associated mm. leaving the nest with trauma. And so what I did was I created almost a pathology, a neuroses, which was ritualizing. So I, I became sort of OCD. Mm. And it took me years to recognize that what I was doing was actually deeply natural and deeply human. I was, I was using ritual as a way to assuage my sense of anxiety. I just didn't have a particular religious or cultural tradition in which that made sense 
So I kind of created my own. Right. Mm -hmm. And I guess my uh, in a way, I've been kind of trying to prepare to to do that as well as it relates to the ritual or the cultural um, lens of holding. How do I put this? Honoring death in a good way, like, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the indigenous, they call it walking in a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I loved as I watched the documentary of you at Zen Hospice was this, you you know, this notion of this choice of of putting flowers um, over, which I think is is a symbolic but very, very beautiful act. And Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly enough, I have actually on my personal altar staffs from a a ceremony called the Flower Blessing, which is a a Wadika tradition. I'd love to actually love for you to experience it at some point. I I, I would I think every human being on the planet would be given the greatest service if they had Mm. the opportunity to receive a flower blessing while they're Mm. living. But ostensibly, Mm. it's the taking the blessing of each flower petal by a woman over sacred copal smoke. And each flower is laid into an altar, which is a, a, a dedication and a reverence to the divine, to the, to the divine in, in, in all. And then each flower is then reattached at a certain point onto a staff. And then that staff is used to bless and cover the entire body of a human laid before the altar. So it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's whether you knew it or not, it's this ancient technology that seemed deeply wow. analogous to what you do with the dying body. And I, I have it on my altar because I wanted my my I have a ticket home. And my intention is to hopefully if my dad makes it to be there to honor their 50th wedding anniversary, which is in two weeks, and mm-hmm. to hopefully do some type of a version of a flower blessing. But I, I say that in the question of and I get and I'm making it personal because I think sometimes, you know, people can get great, great results out of, or in the listening around someone taking a a more vulnerable take, as opposed to keeping it philosophical. Do you have any insights on both fostering and marking my father's passing in a beautiful way? Mm -hmm. And an effective, I don't know if effective is the right way, uh, um, insights around mourning, insights around, <laughs> and celebration, you know, I mean, like, it, it, it's, a memorial can be a celebration, not just, uh, not just a, uh, a solemn event, but mm-hmm. any, 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 any insights around walking a beautiful way as it relates to the moment of passing, or preparing mm-hmm. for the moment of passing, as well as sort of, a, 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 a demarcation of that period, let's call it mourning or grief, mm-hmm. such mm-hmm. that one can walk that road in a beautiful way. Yeah. Well, brother, yeah, let's think here. Well, I mean, for one, I think let's just start with some basics. Grief. For my money, you know, uh, and I'm not the only one who thinks this or any of these thoughts, but I mean, for my money right now, grief is we're, we're, we're being asked to really learn grief. Mm-hmm. We, you know, in the U S U S psychiatry in the recent years is, I think has been mis misguided. We talk about, you know, grief is you get like maybe two, a couple weeks to feel sad. Then if you're still sad, we call it depression. We pathologize it. I mean, what, it's crazy. If we take, if we stop and think about, it, it's like we were talking about fear a little bit. That grief, it can feel 
impossible. You know, it can feel it's like a hair shirt. I mean, it just it can feel a gazillion different ways, and it has many different proxies. Sometimes it's anger, it could be giddiness, it could be anything. But grief, if you see it for what it is, which is our metabolizing loss, mm. the fact that your father, your father is here, you know, and he's, I feel like I've met him just meeting you, you know, and I know he's still with us, you know, he, it's going to take a minute to reconcile that he's gone to whatever degree he's actually gone. That doesn't happen in an instant. The more you love someone, the more, the more powerful the grief. I guess what I'm saying here is we need to see love as the root of grief. Because otherwise, those feelings are intolerable, can be intolerable. And if you're not careful, you end up pushing away what is a connection to the thing that you love so much. And of course, it's going to hurt to lose him in this way. And again, here, pain isn't the enemy. Pain is not, sorrow is not the enemy. I think the celebrations that can come from memorials is not a celebration in like a party sense like we normally might have. The, the thing that we're celebrating is we are big enough to hold, to not, I, I can hold these hard feelings and I can be celebrating the fact that I get to be alive and that I had these feelings ever in the first place and that this person I love so much ever existed in the first place. I can have, I can celebrate reality being so big and so capable of holding all this stuff. That's what I'm celebrating. I'm not celebrating the, the, I'm not wishing the sorrow out of my way. I'm embracing the sorrow and being bigger than the sorrow and being, feeling the, the good fortune to have a feeling of any kind ever. And I think that's the celebration here. It's the shamelessness for a minute, for a week, for a month in this grieving process, the mourning process, you get to roll with whatever feeling comes your way because it's going to come your way. You can try to control it, but I, in my experience, it doesn't work so well. And why would you want to control it? This is the thing that connects you to your dad forever. This is the thing. This is you going the fact that I, I'm so in love with my dad that I can't, my body's going to feel like something's being ripped out of it when he goes, right? I, the hard feelings reflect your love. Mm. I guess is what I'm trying to grope for here. And if you can keep that in mind, in this way, grief is something you almost welcome. It's an honorific, and it's just going to happen, and you might as well roll with it. So I find that grounding to be really, really helpful because otherwise I've watched myself and others try to kick the grief out of me. Mm. And in so doing, I'm accidentally kicking the love out of me. Mm. And that was a big mistake. So now the second point of, um, you know, sort of a period, how to mark, demarcate it. Um, I think, uh, you know, smarter, older cultures give it six months, give yourself a year, give you two years, you know, because we're feeling fleshy, messy things, ends are not so crisp. It's going to take you a, take you a while to grok when your dad's no longer here, mm. and that's going to that's not a two week thing. It doesn't have a, it's not a paying attention to a clock. And so, I would just encourage you to roll with it for however long you have, however long you need to. That's a connection to him. That's a connection to love. 
And I do think it's useful to demarcate it. Like we used to wear black armbands or hang crepe, or we mm. would demarcate ourselves as being in an altered state. I think grief is an altered state. There's magical thinking. You'll be shocked to relearn that your dad's gone. You know, it's like, you know, and I'm sorry if I keep personalizing, it might be. No, no, not at all. No, no. That's actually beautiful. Uh, I love it. Okay. So, so I think that, I think that's, you know, you're in an altered state, letting the world know through some, you know, if we wore black, you know, if we had some way, then the world would know, Hey, to treat us with a, with maybe a little extra love and a little extra patience and not expect your brain to be all here all the time. So give yourself that. We're not living in a culture that has these rituals in baked in right now. Maybe we can collectively start. Maybe now's the time to collectively come up with some of these rituals again or revisit them. But meanwhile, you can make them yourself, Michael, of course, and I'd encourage you to do so, to give yourself that space to be weird, to feel off. Because this is weird. This is off. This thing is just the way it is. And lastly, I think, you know, sometimes uh, a keepsake, you know, something of his or have him touch something or a piece of clothing. I lost my sister years ago. I had her sweater in which that she was wearing that she died in. And I could still smell her on it. I could smell her B.O. <laughs> it was in the armpit. It was wild. But it was that was her. Yeah. In that in a visceral way, you know, so whatever that object may be, or it may be just a thought, or it may be a rhythmic pattern in which you move in and out of the doorway to his room, whatever it is, I'd encourage you to mark it because then these are these, this is how you give yourself a little material toehold for your dad to rest mm. in your memory, in your heart, in an object. And like you've already learned, he's not the object. You might lose that object, but forever long you can keep that object in your possession it would be a nice touchstone to remember him by, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know where that my sister's sweater is anymore, but for years it was very important to me. But when I finally accommodated loss and internalized my sister's existence, I didn't need the external thing anymore. She was mm-hmm. in me. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, BJ, I hope this won't be our last conversation. I want to take a moment to, really uh just honor and acknowledge you uh we've never met before i uh definitely spent a good amount of time listening to your words and watching the netflix documentary reading the book and um it's not all i would say and i say this totally authentically this has been one of the most powerful conversations i've had on this platform and this is it's for this reason that I that I that I decided to do this when I finally got over my ego and launched this 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 Mm -hmm. this podcast because I think you're one of those humans that is medicine for the world and I mean that in that I think uh you know when when one person has transcended a profound personal challenge such that they can turn it into um their gift and and educate and inspire others to go through their own deep deep challenges it's really uh it's really a gift so i just want to say thanks well and i'd throw it right back at you michael you i'm i'm watching gift play out right in front of my eyes man and uh i can't thank you enough you know you know honestly this is how we learn this is how we go and this is how we feel okay with ourselves in the world. And 
uh, I got to tell you, Michael, having never met you except for this platform, I'll share you a secret with you. I love you. I really mean that. I mean, I really do. I love your father. I feel like I know him a little bit through you for an, an hour conversation. And I hope you'll give him a hug for me um, one way or another. I will. And, uh, and I can't thank you enough for daring to try to live a bigger reality, a fuller reality, a realer reality in which we all belong. And no one's inside or outside. We're all in it. And thank you for setting your sights on that reality. I'm with you. That's what I'm trying to do, too. And if we could all do that, it'd be a different world. Ah, yeah. <laughs> where can people uh, where can people find you in your work, my man? I'll, I'll link I'll link to it all below. But is there anything yeah. in particular that you that's your that's your unique offering or expression where people can sort of, uh, you know, get to know you a little bit better? Well, so there's the the book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, that I wrote with Shoshana Berger. And that's very much practical. There's some personal stuff in there, but um, love to point folks to the book if it's useful to them. Um, there's at at BJ Miller MD, I think, is my Twitter thingy. Um, you know, that I'm trying to get better at using that. Um, and then right now um, I'm launching a brand new little sort of nonprofit thing. This next time we talk, we can talk about this, this next thing, which is what I'm currently calling the center for dying and living, yeah. which I don't know if that name will stick. I love the name, but it might, I like scare it. Some folks up. Um, you know, it's like just what we're talking about. First you deal with dying and then you can start living. Yeah. Um, so the center for dying and living dot org is a, is our little nonprofit, just brand new. Sonia and I made the website in the kitchen. It's, 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 we're just getting started. It's a placeholder, but that intends to be a big library, a big archive of resources and information and also a place for people to, to put their stories so we can all begin to learn from each other's subjective experiences. So anyway, those are three things. Those are, those are some vehicles to get to, to get a little closer. Great. Well, I want to say a couple things. One, I'm grateful, profoundly grateful. Two, I love you too, and I love your stand in the world. It, it inspires me to be, uh, I think when we see things that, that, uh, that are stands that feel authentic and real, it helps us further align to our, our own center. And, uh, and you're that stand, so I'm grateful for that, BJ. And uh, this uh, hopefully will not be our last conversation, so thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Such a pleasure, pal. All right. <laughs> All right. You take care, man. Yeah, you too, brother. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that beautiful conversation with BJ Miller. It was truly uh, an honor and a privilege to have that kind of wisdom. Uh, for me, I think personally, as I navigate through these challenges, but I hope for all of you listening, because I think these are often murky waters, you know, oftentimes it's it's really hard to know how to effectively deal with grieving and preparing to lose those that we love the most, but um, it's something we all face in this life, so I wanted to offer you the insights of one of the best in the world um, at helping you to navigate these waters, and I hope it was um, insightful. It was for me. If you'd like to leave us feedback, uh, please uh, be happy to pass on to BJ as well. 
but uh, feel free to tag me at Michael Trainer. As always, your 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 ratings and reviews on iTunes mean the world to me because they help me get great guests um, and also to build this community. So um, if you haven't yet, please go ahead and leave a rating and review. And um, and just thanks for listening. <clears throat> this community means the world to me, and I'm I'm really so grateful for all of you. So. Thank you so much. Sending you guys lots of love. And uh, please go out there and live your inspired life.